The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Want to fearlessly explore your creative spirit? Join artist Susie K. Edwards for Path of the Butterfly, a weekend workshop at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York, May 24th through 26th. Experiment with a variety of art forms, engage in mindfulness, walking, and silent meditation, and discover a new and free-flowing creative vision. This workshop is for beginners and professional artists. Learn more at eomega.org thrive. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Support for this show comes from Inner Engineering, program to empower every human being with the tools for well-being from the distilled essence of yogic sciences. Visit www.innerengineering.com to learn more. From Spirituality and Health Magazine, I'm Rabbi Rami and this is Essential Conversations. Our guest today is Dr. Daniel Siegel, a New York Times bestselling author, a professor of clinical psychiatry at the UCLA School of Medicine, founding co-director of UCLA's Mindful Awareness Research Center, and executive director of the Mind Sight Institute, an educational center devoted to promoting insight, compassion, and empathy in individuals, families, institutions, and communities. His newest book is Mind, A Journey to the Heart of Being Human. A review of the book appears in the November-December issue of Spirituality and Health magazine. Daniel Siegel, welcome to Essential Conversations. Thank you, Rami, and a pleasure to be here with you. Yes, yeah, nice to talk to you. I'm looking forward to this. I really enjoyed the book, and uh, I've got <laughs> I've got a lot of questions. Let's start with the notion of mind. Yes. Uh, what What do you have in mind in mind when you talk about mind? <laughs> Well, you know, for any of us who deal with the mind, whether it's, you know, starting from the level of spirituality, you know, asking questions like, who are we? Why are we here? How are we connected with each other and the universe? Um, to issues about, you know, what is our psychological health made of? Or even going down into the body and saying, well, we live in a body. How does the body relate to this fact that we have consciousness and subjective experience? We've got, you know, thoughts, feelings. We have even information processing outside of conscious experience, outside of awareness. What is this mind stuff? And um, what I guess struck me was that, and this is kind of a startling reality, now that I've (laughs) surveyed so many people, Short of saying the mind is brain activity, which has been said since the days of Hippocrates 2,500 years ago, there actually is no definition of the mind. There's lots of descriptions, but no definition. And this just puzzled me. So I started asking people systematically, like uh, mental health professionals, and I literally asked 100,000 mental health professionals around the globe, 
And only about 5% at most would say, yes, someone told me what the mind is. So 95% have never been told what the mental of mental health is. And when you don't have a definition of the mind, how can you say what a healthy mind is? And this becomes true even when you ask educators or if you go to the academic fields of my field, psychiatry, I'm also trained in psychology, you know, there's no definition of the mind. And even if you look at a field called philosophy of mind, they say you should never define the mind because it'll limit your understanding, which I totally get that. If I were a philosopher, I'd probably take the exact same stance, but I'm a psychotherapist. So it really would bug me that I was trained to be a therapist of the mind. Psyche is the Greek derivative for soul, spirit, intellect, and mind being synonyms for psyche. So as a psychotherapist, I'm a, you know, a therapist of the mind. And what if my clients, my patients said to me, hey, Dan, uh, you're my mind therapist, right? And I go, uh, yeah, that I'm a psychotherapist. I'm your psychotherapist. Yes, I'm your mind therapist. And they go, well, what's the mind? And I go, I don't know. I mean, that would just seem a little off. It would be seem a little awkward. It just doesn't seem right. So this started me on a quest that's been going on about 25 years to see if there was a scientifically grounded definition, not just description, but definition of the mind that you might offer that could fit with the science, that might give us a window into what a healthy, strong, thriving mind might be, and then give you tools for how to develop that healthy mind. But still not defining it. No, no, no. Defining it. Yeah. So, so, so what's the definition? So it's a bit of a long story, but I'll give you the short, short, short version, which is I had 40 scientists together that included anthropologists, neuroscientists, and physicists, and a whole bunch of other people. They couldn't come to an agreement on what the mind was. It was the one question we were addressing is what's the connection between the mind and the brain? And I went for a long walk and ultimately felt that the common ground that an anthropologist or sociologist or linguist deals with and what a neuroscientist deals with is energy and information flow. And the system of that flow, just sticking straight with science, sometimes people hear energy and they go, oh, how soft and gooey is that? You know, you must be from California or something. But the fact is energy is a scientific property of the universe. So it's, it's not a gooey thing, it's an actual reality. So you go, energy can sometimes have symbolic value, that's information, and energy changes, that's called flow. So the phrase is energy and information flow, and the system has the mathematical properties of being what's called a complex system. Those properties are, it's open, chaos capable, and nonlinear, and nonlinear simply means a small input leads to large and, and difficult to predict results. Anyway, when you're a complex system, you have what are called emergent properties. So the proposal I made to the group the next week when I went to them was what if the mind is the embodied and relational, so that's its location, not just the head, but throughout the whole body and not just in the body, but in your relationships with other people, with the planet, with other things, an embodied relational what? Emergent self-organizing. So self-organizing is an emergent property, so it just clarifies what it is. And what does self-organization do? An emergent self-organizing process that regulates, that is, it monitors and modifies 
It regulates the flow of energy and information where? In your whole body and in your connections with the world. So I went to the group the next week and amazingly there was a unanimous vote in favor of this working definition. They'd never heard of it, but it met everyone's criteria. And the group went on to meet for four and a half years. And it was an amazing lesson to me about the importance of honoring different perspectives and trying to bring them into some kind of common ground, which hadn't been done. And that definition from 1992 allowed us to work together. And for me as a therapist, what allowed me to do was to say, can I use this definition of this emergent self-organizing body relational process to actually approach therapy in a different way by asking the question, how do I optimize self-organization? And the answer is you differentiate elements of a system and link them. And let's just call that integration. So the proposal was a healthy mind is a mind that creates integration, that is differentiation plus linkage within you and between you. And that definition and that proposal about health back in 92 turn out now, 24 years later, to have a ton of empirical support that it looks like those proposals might be accurate. So, so let me ask you some, uh, some basic questions. I mean, this, I, I'm, I'm getting a little, a little dizzy, <laughs> but I think I'm following this. I hope it's a good dizzy, Romy. <laughs> well, because yeah, if I, you I, were just, if you were just bored. No, no, not yeah, bored, not bored, challenged, uh-huh. challenged. And, and one of the challenges, and this may be totally <laughs> off, is that it sounds like you're defining a, well, you say a process but the word mind is a noun. It's a thing. But you're no, saying, no, if I follow this, it's true. not a thing. Right, right. That's, right. So I think that's that's one thing that, that I want to make sure people get across, that the mind is not a thing. You're not going to open up the brain and say, oh, there's there's the mind. And the mind isn't... Now, you, you say that the mind is, in, is embodied, and I want to get to the relational part in a second. But you say the mind is embodied, but that's very different, I think, from saying the body has a mind. Yeah, well, that's a linguistic issue. So what, what do you see as the difference between those two statements? Well, when, I, when, when you say that the mind is embodied, it means that the process uh, permeates the body as opposed to being a thing within the body like uh, the brain. Well, I, I, those, to me, those two things go hand in hand. Okay. I mean, that, is, that is, when you think about energy and information flow, and Rami, you're not alone, so let me, let me try to reassure you. You know, if this thinking were easy to do, it would, someone would have thought about it before me, believe me. You know, I'm just like a practicing therapist, father, human on the planet. It, it just really, really bothered me that people were reducing mental life to just the brain. And then as a psychiatrist telling us, the only thing we could do to help people was prescribe medications for them. So just so you know, this drove me mad. Because I could see in psychotherapy that people could change. And, 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 and in terms of the brain science back then, I mean, when I was in medical school back in 1978, my teacher of neuroscience, David Hubel, he won the Nobel Prize in 1981 to show that experience shapes the brain. So for me, psychotherapy is an experience that could change the brain. And when I was being taught, just give pills, I thought, they don't understand the science. These are my teachers. Right. So 
again, let's see if I get this. It, the, the experience can change the brain because mind is energy and the, and the energy is what is what's changing the brain because you, you, your experience is always relational, I guess. And the mind is, is also relational. So it's, it's almost, see, I guess what I'm hearing is something very Buddhist sounding or, or just maybe mystically inclined in general in the sense that uh, mind is universal, brain is local. Mind is not local or non-local. Brain is local. My brain's in my skull. But my mind is, it seems to me, and we're going to get to this in a minute because I want to ask you about the relational part, but it seems to me that the mind is, my mind and your mind are not really all that separate. Is exactly. that Okay, so I am on the right track with that. Yeah, I mean, this is, I mean, first of all, these questions are so exciting. I love how you're, you're phrasing them because, and the reason I wrote the book as a set of questions is because joining with each other on the, in this conversation to expand the notion that has been with us in science and even probably modern society that, you know, the mind just emanates from your brain. So the self, which emanates from the mind is just in your brain or it's just in your body has made people feel so isolated from other people, from the larger human family, and even from a sense of you know, connection across time and space, which people would call spiritual belonging. You know? So these issues, while they start with, you know, and this is why I wrote the book, not just as questions, but also as a journey book to say, look, you know, it's not like this is a bunch of information as uh, a writer, I'm gonna shove on you as a reader. It's more like, hey, Let's walk this set of questions together and see what comes open for you. And let's see what has come open for me and see how you feel about it. You know, so it's been absolutely fascinating when you talk about what you're speaking about now to come across this following view of science. And we don't usually talk about it, but it's just the reality of science that in physics. So you have in science, you know, you've got math physics, chemistry, biology, psychology, you know, sociology, linguistics, and anthropology, this kind of sequence of larger and larger systems that you work with. And in mathematical terms, then we have this complexity theory, which is kind of the beginning of where this definition of mind comes from. But in physics, we have the following reality. There's a set of rules called Newtonian or classical physical rules, like about gravity and forces, that are based on certainty. So if you and I were together and I had this ball, which I have here in my hand right now, and you watched me drop it, you would know, Rami, for certain that I would be dropping this ball and it would go down because gravity is a part of Newtonian physics and it's about certainties. Want to fearlessly explore your creative spirit? Join artist Susie K. Edwards for Path of the Butterfly, a weekend workshop at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York, May 24th through 26. Experiment with a variety of art forms, engage in mindfulness, walking, and silent meditation, and discover a new and free-flowing creative vision. This workshop is for beginners and professional artists. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive. But when they started studying very small, small things, which instead of being these accumulations of small things called macro states, like these large bodies we live in, or like this ball I'm holding, so that's a large macro state. When you got to the micro state level, like an electron 
or a photon, then those Newtonian classical physics rules do not apply. And a whole other set of laws that could be mathematically governed that were based on probabilities, not certainties, and that blew wide open our notion of space and even of time. So this has been around for almost a century, about it's a little over 90 years now, quantum physics. And people, you know, oh, they roll their eyes. They say, never talk about the mind in quantum physics. And they also tell me, oh, never talk about energy in the mind. And I go, why not? They go, well, energy is not scientific. And if physics is science, then energy is a part of science. So here's what I want to say. The mind, part of it, may be emerging from microstates where the kinds of laws of the universe that apply to it are quantum laws. Other aspects of the mind that we can talk about in a few minutes may have macrostate features to them. But you have this weird reality where you live in a Newtonian classical physics determined body for the most part, but you have a, at least in part, quantum, partially quantum mind. And then you go, whoa. And then you look at the studies that came out, let's say in 2015, October, from the physics journals that say that the process of what's called entanglement, that is things get coupled and if you then entrain them together and then pull them apart physically, a foot apart, a mile apart, hundreds, thousands of miles apart, they have immediate influences on each other that are not forces, it's a relationship. And that's our notion of space separating things may actually be an illusion. That's proven. Right. That's right. There, that, that is a, a fact. So how does that, I, I, I mean, my mind is racing here. Uh, so exciting. It, well, it's very exciting. And unfortunately, we're coming up to the end of the show. But um, if, if we're, in a sense, sharing this uh, quantum energy field and mind is participating in that or mind is actually a, a, a process of that. Part, part of mind is because there are certain parts, I think, you know, like thoughts and complex memories and stuff like that, that are more, ma <coughs> excuse me, macro states, which have something called an arrow of time, an arrow of directionality. But these micro states, which I think where awareness comes from, can also have a layer, pure awareness, which may be more like a micro state, which is arrow free. And in but, the book, I talk a lot about this. Yes, but there, so there may be, we have to be really careful not to generalize about the mind as a whole, but realize the mind is best yeah. to it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Uh, but you do talk about, and I'm, I'm just reading from the book, actually, that the mind is within us, within the whole body and between us. And yeah. it's the between that I'm, that I'm want to just talk about for a minute. I want you to talk about for a minute because, yeah. uh, you know, as a, a psychotherapist, as a um, psychiatrist, you're, you're tapping into that place of the in-between. Martin Buber says that when we truly meet, and it could be another human being, it could be an animal, talks about, um, and then he talks about a tree. You can even meet uh, something, you know, in nature like a tree. He, he argues that there's this in-between place that isn't you, that isn't the other, but that is now I don't know, this place of interdependence or, or meeting or, or, or unity that allows you to communicate on a different level because you can't actually talk to the tree. Uh, 
but to communicate it on a different level because, and now I'm putting you into the mix here, because in, on some level, in some way, you're sharing a common mind. How yeah. far off is that? No, I don't think it's far off at all. I think, um, you know, well, a couple of things. It reminds me of my dear friend, John O'Donohue's book, uh, To Bless the Space Between Us. Mm -hmm. um, and I wish John was still alive so we could chat with him about it. Um, but in, in Buber's terms and, and, and getting to the physics terms, there's two things just to look at, Romney. One is we have direct forces. So I was recently teaching at the Royal Institute of uh, Britain. And in that building is the Michael Faraday um, Museum. And Faraday, in the 1800s, you know, proposed that there were these things you couldn't see, but they thought they were real, called electromagnetic waves. And I'm sure some people thought he was nuts, because how can something exist that you don't see? But the fact is, the fact is, they exist and almost all of our electronics are based on that. So one thing is, what Buber may have been describing are the way in which energy fields, literally these electromagnetic fields, are very likely to be able to influence each other. Now, you can do that directly with light and sound and how we communicate, but there may be other things as well. So that's one thing. But another thing that, you know, Buber wouldn't have known about, and certainly Faraday didn't know about it, comes from this entanglement thing, which is also called non-locality. And we want to be really, really, really conservative about it. But let's just say this that entanglement is not about the passage of forces from one entity to another, like electromagnetic forces. It is a relationality among coupled entities, like electrons, or, or different structures, you know, in mass, but that are, are having this microstate capacity. And it's even been demonstrated, by the way, in mass, this October 2015 article. But here's what I want to say about it is, we need to be very careful that you can have exactly what Buber is saying on both levels. You can have something happening with proximity where forces we cannot see may be communicating with each other that totally makes sense. Just pick up your cell phone and if you doubt that these things exist. And then number two is, you know, and I've asked now lots of people, I said, with someone who's physically separated from you, like a mile away, a hundred miles away, a thousand miles away, how many of you have ever had some kind of very specific communication that you know can never be explained by just coincidence? And 90% of people raise their hand. And it's just remarkable. Um, someone should do a study of that. But the bottom line is you could explain that with this notion of the microstate capacity of the mind to exhibit entanglement. How do you think, and this, and we are out of time, but I, I've just got to ask you very quickly, though the answer is probably <laughs> taking you forever. How does this impact the art and science of psychiatry, of being a psychotherapist, knowing what you know now? How can, how can our listeners and myself, is there something we can do to improve our, the quality of mind? Yes. <laughs> that's the and answer. That's the answer. That's the answer. All right, great. The Buy the book and, and you'll and get I'll, the <laughs> I'll answer in a very short way. You know, when you ask what is optimal uh, self-organization, you get this process of integration and you can look at very specific ways where in your life, chaos or rigidity are revealing impaired integration and you can actually use your mind to improve the way impaired integration is. So in other words, create more differentiation and linkage, either in your relationships or in your body with its brain. 
And I talk about this at length in a book called Mindsight, a book called Brainstorm, and in this latest book, Mind. Is meditation one of the tools that you would use or you would recommend? Yes. Yes. Mindfulness meditation is a form of mind integration in that it differentiates the knowing from the known. We have a wheel of awareness practice. If you want to do something immediately, go to my website, drdansiegel.com. Go to resources, do the wheel of awareness, and you will experience firsthand how to integrate consciousness. And then let me know how it goes. Yeah, actually, I did it, and it's really a fascinating uh, experience. So yeah. that that is good. That will, will, I think that's a perfect place to leave people. They can pick up the book, and they can go check out the website and actually experience this to some extent for themselves. Beautiful. So my guest today was Dr. Daniel Siegel. He's the author of Mind, A Journey to the Heart of Being Human. A review of the book appears in the November-December issue of Spirituality and Health magazine. You can learn more about Dan's work on his website, drdansiegel.com. And try the, the, the activities that he has on the website. It's really fascinating. Dan, thank you so much for being with us on Essential Conversations. A pleasure, Romy. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I appreciate it. Support for this show comes from Inner Engineering, a program to empower every human being with the tools for well-being from the distilled essence of yogic sciences. Visit www.innerengineering.com to learn more. Essential Conversations with Rabbi Rami is a project of Spirituality and Health magazine. Visit spiritualityhealth.com and subscribe to the magazine in either print or digital formats and download the iTunes app for this podcast. Essential Conversations is produced by Ezra Baker and our program coordinator and executive producer is Alma Tassi. I'm Rabbi Rami. Thanks for listening. Hey, it's Radley Valentine. Join me for a brand new way of connecting with your angels on my new podcast, The Angel Tarot Show. Each week, you'll meet your angelic guides and guardians and find new ways to unlock unconditional love, tune into your intuitive abilities, and create the joy-filled life that, well, you've always wanted. Plus, you'll get a useful and timely energetic weather report, bringing you guidance for the coming week. Tap into the healing, hope, and guidance that's all around you on the Angel Tarot Show exclusively on mindbodyspirit.fm.